Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Faiths Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. I am your host, Brian Dillman. As you can tell from the intro music, we have another episode with uh, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife and my friend Laurel and myself. Uh, we talk about a couple things. We obviously talk about some questions that have come up. It's been a while since we've had an episode, and now we've put one together. Also, Jennifer will talk a little bit about some sales that she has going on, and Laurel will talk about our belated and somewhat rushed um, fundraiser for the Leahona Children's Foundation. So got a lot of stuff going on, so let's jump right to it. All right, well, we are back. We've been on kind of a vacation here, but uh, we are back with Jennifer and Laurel and Brian with another installment of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist episodes. Jennifer and Laurel, say hello. Hello. Hi. All right. Well, it's good to it's good to be back. But while we've been away, we've had a lot of questions coming from different places, comments on the blog, messages from different people, wanting to make sure that this this series stays running. And so we're going to keep it running. We have more questions that people have that Jennifer can answer. Um, and since it's that time of the year again, one Jennifer will talk about some of the sales that she's has going on. And now that we feel like as a blog we can move forward with um, our, I guess this will be our third annual fundraiser for the Leahona Children's Foundation. Uh, Laurel, do you want to talk about that at all at this point? Uh, Yeah, we're a little behind on that, but we will, hopefully my goal is to get that up after Thanksgiving. So the Leahona Children's Foundation is a charity that uh, they focus and specialize in early childhood nutrition Um, from the ages of zero to five, because that's when the brain develops. And they found that if you don't get the nutrition, then your brain is permanently stunted. Um, So they go to developing countries and basically provide nutritional supplements for uh, what amounts to roughly about a steak, steak's worth of children from zero to five. And people, you know, the children do not have to be LDS. Um, It is administrated at an LDS building, but, um, it's, you know, whoever wants to apply. Um, and yeah, last year we were able to get two stakes supported. Our goal is one this year, cause I know it's kind of stressful and people have a lot of different things they're focusing on at this time. Um, but if we get to, that'd be great. And we will also have, we'll still have swag that we are sending out. If you make a donation, you can get things like posters or other kinds of gifts from LDS artists. Yeah, so hopefully that will be up after Thanksgiving. And I think one of my courses is up to be bid upon, right, and donated, right? Yes, yes. We'll have one of Dr. Finlayson's five courses as a swag prize for donating. So you could donate and save starving children and get a course. So it's like double win. Help a child and have better sex. (laughs) That's a twofer you probably never thought of before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah lots of stuff coming up uh jennifer do you want to talk about your uh i guess holiday sale christmas sure. sale? on this podcast we can say christmas sale. that's right that's okay. we can say christmas yeah so um starting right about thanksgiving time i am going to be doing a 20 percent off sale on all of my courses there's four of them and um maybe you can link to it here so people can see but Two of the courses are completely upgraded and new, um, both better delivery format and upgraded content. And they were already extremely popular, so just getting better. And um, I'm not increasing the price on the courses, um, even though they have been upgraded. And it's a 20% off sale and includes a year of office hours, which is a format where you can write in or call in questions to me um, that I answer that are how how the content of the course applies to your life specifically or your marriage. So um, anyway, so those office hours are like a group format, anonymous group format, not a, not private sessions with me, but anyway, so those courses are on sale until Christmas and they make a great gift too. So. All right. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots of stuff to look forward to. 
Uh, I think we should jump right into it. There, we have two questions today, and Laurel, why don't you take the first one? All right. So question number one. Um, they are hearkening back to a question asked in episode four. So if you haven't gone there, you can go back and listen to episode four. But there's enough context here. Says the questioner in episode four asked, I think partly in joking, if he ought to have a book on their living room table with pictures of naked women in it. Dr. Finlayson Fife said that wouldn't be a bad idea. Was she joking as well? I guess that idea is so far from what I or my husband were thinking that we can't imagine that as a good thing. My husband was inactive and almost 30 when we met. He'd had a long history with pornography and still sometimes struggles with it. He is concerned that having naked women or pictures around would get our son into pornography earlier than he'll already be exposed to it or prime him for when that exposure will happen. Okay, good. Um, so I don't remember exactly how I responded to the question in episode four, uh, but I don't think that I was promoting the idea of having a book of naked women particularly, <laughs> but perhaps I was suggesting that a book of artistic uh, expressions of the human form could be a way of normalizing the body. Um, and so maybe I wasn't very clear in that episode, but you know, I'm thinking of, for example, Renaissance art that in particular celebrates the human form. And like in Renaissance thinking, you know, coming out of the Dark Ages and Michelangelo in particular, but others of the, of the time, saw depicting the human form as a way of, of honoring God, like as a way of really um, celebrating the beauty of the human body and, and God's creation of it, the perfection of the proportion and so on. And so during the Renaissance, there was, if you've ever, any of you have ever been to Italy or want to come on the upcoming trip <laughs> that I'll be um, participating in, there is just, the Renaissance art is just replete with expressions of the beauty of the human body. And so um, I think that that is both a wonderful idea, meaning a wonderful theological idea that we can celebrate because we believe in embodied parents in heaven, that the body is divine, all of it. It's not so much, you know, for the eroticism of it, right? It's more around expressing um, that the body isn't in its own right beautiful. Um, so, and I think to be sexually at peace, we have to be able to see our bodies as good and beautiful, even if we respect modesty in public settings. And I think modesty is to protect the sexual aspect of ourselves. It's to, you know, basically, paradoxically, I think, we think about it as trying to keep the body from being sexualized, but I think modesty actually acts to sexualize the body in an important way. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but there's nothing less sexy than a nudist colony. When I was in high school, I actually went to a nude beach without knowing that's where we were going. <laughs> and <laughs> it completely shocked me. But I'm here to tell you, it was not sexy at all, <laughs> uh, if you can imagine. So the, the, the reality is that what we eroticize is what is mysterious, is what is forbidden, is what is covered. It, the more exposed something is and the more mundane and, and familiar it becomes, the less we sexualize it. So I actually had a single client uh, who was on a business trip in, um, in the Middle East and had a colleague, a female colleague there who was Muslim and had her hair covered. And as he associated with her and was getting to know her more and more and was feeling really attracted to her and she was to him, and at a certain point, she removed her head covering, which is, you know, showed her hair, which is forbidden in her culture, but not in my client's culture. But because the meaning of it was that he was exposing something to her, she was exposing something to him, I'm sorry, mean to say, it was very arousing for him. And this isn't because he's never seen women's hair before, <laughs> women's hair all the time. Uh, in the States, but because the meaning of it was that it was covered and forbidden, the fact that she showed him her hair was powerful 
was a powerful meaning. And so this is the thing. It's not that breasts are inherently erotic. It's that we eroticize them by covering them. Um, hair isn't inherently erotic or non-erotic. It becomes erotic the more that we cover it and make it mysterious. And so, um, you know, I think that while it's really well-intentioned sometimes that telling seven-year-olds in primary that they should cover their shoulders on a hot day in order to be modest uh, is to actually create a sexual self-awareness way before it's needed or prudent for that child. And so we're paradoxically doing the opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to protect our children from being sexualized and sexualizing them in the process of doing it. Um, you know, for example, I had a friend who uh, I may have talked about before who would sort of throw herself in front of the magazine so that her young boys wouldn't see them, see the, the images of women in bikinis and whatever. And, you know, she was doing this in order to keep her sons from being porn addicts. And I was said to her, you know, you're doing exactly what will drive precisely the fascination that you don't want them to have. And that is that that mom is high anxiety and is trying to keep me from seeing something. And she's giving me two messages. One is that whatever's behind her is really, really, really mysterious and curious. And that I'm sort of bad for being curious and wanting to know about it. And putting those two together makes you more likely to seek out porn, more likely to be drawn to what may not be good for you. And so if you want to protect your kids from, you know, consuming porn in some, you know, uh, in a way that's really compulsive and destructive, that you want to basically normalize the body and normalize the beauty of it while respecting the inherent sexuality of the body, meaning of the, the body's capacity for sexuality and eroticism. And so the best way to do that is to respect your body, respect your children's body, respect the inherent modesty that emerges in your children at age, you know, six or so. When kids are younger than that, they're comfortable running around in a kind of unselfconscious way. And that, you know, putting on clothing and things like that is more because it's just around what's considered polite, but not so much a function of their own inherent sense of modesty. As they start to get a little bit older, they your kids will give you signals around when they want more separation between you and their body. They'll want more privacy in the bathroom. They'll not want you to come in when they're getting dressed. And respecting that signal from them is a way of showing them that you respect them and you respect their inherent privacy. That's an important part of sexual development. But it's not out of anxiety and shame and fear of their sexuality, fear that it's something destructive or that they'll be harmed through it. And so that's a way of teaching a kind of modesty and protection of the sexual while still normalizing it and infusing it with respect. Because, you know, I think so often what people are doing in, you know, porn is that you know, because there's so much anxiety around it, you can't see any image without it being sexualized. And really healthy sexuality is about being able to in, in, be very respectful of yourself and another through your sexuality, that you're not sexualizing the people around you that don't want to be sexualized, but you are able to sexualize your partner and able to as an expression of respect, not disrespect. And I think at the core is teaching a basic respect of the body in human beings as children of God. Their body is an expression of that godliness, but not making it all about sex because that is dehumanizing and that is anxiety invoking. So I had an experience um, when I went on a study abroad to Africa at BYU and we lived with a tribe for th like three, three and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. um, this was the Himba tribe in Namibia and, uh, and their tribe that they basically only wear like the equivalent of a loincloth, both men and women. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like, it was fascinating because my project was on beauty and what mm -hmm. people find beautiful. And I remember when I would talk to both the translators and some of the people, they, 
they thought it was so weird that we thought breasts were sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was f- like, even the, the men in the group who were, you know, from BYU, um, you know, they said at first it was very jarring for them, but mm-hmm. in a few days they actually got used to it and it didn't seem, it, it wasn't like arousing them the same mm-hmm. way. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to me that, oh, like we really can train ourselves <laughs> um, yeah. as for what we find arousing or not. And again, I don't, you know, I didn't come from a history of, you know, having pornography addictions or anything like that. But but in a sense, it was so fascinating for me to see how quickly the men just accepted this as normal. And it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and because the himba didn't treat it as sexual either. Right. It's know. because of what's the meaning of it. Uh, seeing a woman with her breasts exposed, the meaning is, is nothing sexual about the fact that you're seeing her breasts. And so the meaning is what drives the eroticism always always and so when you have infused the meaning that the fact that this person is drawn to uh, a naked woman right and you say that means you're a bad person and that you shouldn't be doing this that actually drives a kind of fascination and allure it's kind of paradoxical because the more some parents try the worse it is (laughs) you know rather than i think um you know I mean, I want to respect if some people, like, for example, the person writing this question, that their choices may be different. They may decide that they can't have any images of the human form without sexualizing those images. So if they're not able to not manage that sexualization and they think it's problematic to feel those feelings, right, then, um, then maybe they sh- shouldn't have, you know, Renaissance art in their house. But... Um, but I think the problem is the, the dehumanization of individuals that we do in, when we're looking at pornography. It's, it's like the sexualizing of another person that doesn't want to be sexualized that's problematic because it's a disrespectful energy. And so I think if we can integrate our sexuality as something that we can be at peace with both in ourselves and we can engage it in line with our moral principles, and not be so reactive to it, uh, you know. Th- then I think it's th- then the sexuality is really healthy, and you're able to sexualize at the right time and not be run around by your anxieties. So, would you have any um, advice on even if images aren't a good way? Um, is, are there other like activities or other places that might help? normalize the body in other ways I mean for me I when I took dance um that actually for me was I did modern dance and jazz dance and I was a music theater major at BYU and um and actually doing modern dance especially which is much more about just the way the body moves versus how it looks Mm -hmm. um it it helped me come out of some of my eating disorder stuff because Mm -hmm. I viewed my body as more than just an object to be looked at I was like oh look, my body can do beautiful things that aren't about creating sexual desire in other people. Right. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, the body's just absolutely remarkable. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's like, you know, it's just astounding how much the divine is in our bodies because of how perfectly they function and how, meaning the I don't know. It's just it's just amazing um, whenever you study the human body, how perfect the systems are, how well it runs, and then what it allows you to do, the kinds of things it allows you to express and to experience and to learn, and it's amazing. And so sexuality is such an integral and wonderful part of life, but it's also a challenging part of life. And I think that what we end up doing sometimes is because it creates more anxiety in us, because it's a more challenging part of life to do well, that then we, we make the body all about sexuality and we make re- our faith all about sexuality and controlling our sexuality. You know, that so many people in the sacrament are just thinking about their, their sexual thoughts that they shouldn't have had that week that they're repenting of rather than much more important and bigger questions around what kind of human being am I being? How am I treating people around me? Um, and so I think we absolutely, to your point, Laurel, that we are too narrowly focused on our sexuality in a way that paradoxically interferes with us doing it well. 
So, yeah, so I think um, dance and celebrating the body for all of its magnificence is a great way to do it. And then the magnificence of people. Sexuality, as I said, ad nauseum, anyone who's listened to me, our sexuality we equate with Satan. And sexuality is not good or bad. It's what we do with our sexuality that determines if it's good or bad. And in the next question that we have coming up, I would say what the wife is doing is she's using her sexuality in evil ways by not being sexual. And so, you know, she wants to say her husband's sexuality is sinful when she's the bigger sinner of the two of them, as you'll see in a minute. Um, One of the things that I thought was interesting in your response was the selection of classical or Renaissance art. Hmm. Because, you know, as, as you already said, it's basically just the human form portrayed in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. And other art mediums that do not portray the human body in a realistic way, uh, but the bodies might be fully covered or at least partially covered, are things mm-hmm. like comic books um, mm-hmm. or advertisements or, or other things like that, where there is no nudity in many, in many cases at all. But mm-hmm. like you were saying, it's the covering and the meaning and all that that it makes it hypersexual, makes the body hypersexualized rather yeah. than just being what it is. Right. So, uh, and then uh, Laurel's comment made me think maybe National Geographic, some of the old, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. anybody gets those anymore. We used to yeah. have those when I was a kid. Yeah, we but, got them too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways to just, the body doesn't have to be sexual. Right. So lots of different ways to appreciate it. Or just sexual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, an important part of being human is being sexual, but it's just a part. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So any ways that we can appreciate the body without limiting it to being sexual. Right. Either through modesty or through something else. Right. It's truer to our theology, in my opinion. I mean... It's one of the magnificent parts of our theology is just the celebration of the body, that we are really clear that the body isn't what takes our spirituality down. Like many Christian interpretations are, we're very clear that the body actually promotes our, our development into God-like people. Yeah. And we need to really see it that way more. We need to live it that way more. So, yeah. All right. Great. Um, Let's move on to the next question. This is kind of a long, long-ish one. Mm-hmm. The question reads, In your interviews on the show, you spend a lot of time advocating for the theory of, quote, own your own sexuality. But my question is very basic. How do I do that exactly? In my relationship, I have the common high-desire husband, low-desire wife scenario. But by low desire, I mean she absolutely hates the idea of marital sex, and it's something she just can't stand to do. My asking for sex, foreplay, even cuddling of some kind, means I only focus on the physical side of her and not her intellect, her spirituality, her personality, dot, dot, dot. So any kind of sexual request she actually takes as an insult. And because it is such a sensitive subject with her for whatever reason, There's no talking about it. I cannot mention sex or my own needs associated with it. It It's a subject I'm not even allowed to bring up. If I start talking, she starts talking over the top of me until she feels she is back in control of the conversation and I have to stop. So there's no expressing feelings or sharing on the subject. The common line I hear is, I don't like it and you just have to respect that and respect my wishes. Anything other than that is you being disrespectful to me, which is totally inappropriate. Men respect women. Women who respect men just get taken advantage of, so too bad. In real life, it doesn't work both ways. And if you don't like that, you are more than welcome to leave. Again, I'm the high-desire spouse. I married an attractive woman. I certainly desire to be with her sexually, but I respect my temple covenants and know there are not a lot of solutions here. I have brought up counseling multiple times, but she says, I'm too private of a person. There's no way I'm talking to a stranger about sex. I don't even talk to you about that. And the times I've tried to go on my own is just, quote, me trying to gang up on her and make her change. 
So back to my original question, how in the world do I own my own sexuality when it's completely controlled by another person? I'm a married man, physically attracted to my wife. I have needs. And when there is zero touch or attention, it really messes with my self-worth. I feel like the only way I can really own my sexuality is to take up masturbation, but I know that's wrong and a sin, so I'm totally stuck. Again, how does someone in my position own their sexuality when I have zero control and zero options while holding true to the gospel? Okay, great question, and I'm going to be really candid about it and say that I think your wife is being abusive. Um, I think that she has you exactly where she wants you around this, and you're being really clear about it, um, that you know, anytime you bring this up, she talks over you until she has you back in control. I can't remember exactly how you said that, but it's precisely what she's doing. Uh, she, you know, knows that she's, she's doing what I call an inverse power hierarchy. She's the person that is supposedly on the bottom in the marriage. She's claiming the one down position, but she has all the control. And so, and she's, she, and this happens to a lot of LDS men, in my opinion, because they, we teach a particular kind of hierarchy in marriage where men are the leaders and men have more overt power because they're the breadwinners and often have leadership positions and so on. And that they should be good to the women who have less control. But one way that women can get a hold of this dynamic is to say, because I have less control, you owe me. You can't ask this of me. I'm in the I'm in the disadvantaged position. Therefore, you you if you're a good man, will forsake your desires for my benefit. And she's very clear, at least in the way you're portraying her, of saying you know basically men should respect women, but not the other way around, or women are toast. And um, therefore, you owe me. And so um, yeah, so she's trying to take the position that she's the victim that she hates sex and she's victimized by you, you know, her husband's desire for it. And I think that it's, you know, be one thing if you got married under the assumption that there would be no sex and then you came up with this idea after the fact, okay? And she's like, no, I don't want to do this, okay? But the, the reality is, is that marriage is inherently a sexual relationship. It's, it contains a sexual contract. The assumption is that we will be sexual exclusively together, that you'll bring your sexuality and I'll bring my sexuality and this is where we will direct it is towards one another. And what oftentimes the lower desire person will do is, is say, I don't want the exposure of actually being sexual or bringing my sexual desire to you but you better keep bringing your sexual desire to me and I will control whether or not it ever gets gratified. So that is to say that oftentimes, and, and not certainly not always, but oftentimes lower desire partners want to know that they're desired and desirable um, and they don't want their partner to, but they don't want to be sexual. So they don't want their spouse to bring their sexuality outside of the marriage. They don't want to direct it at porn they just want it directed at them and then they'll decide whether or not they ever gratify it. And that gives them the clarity that they're wanted, but they don't have to want in return because wanting can feel exposing and vulnerable. And so the woman in this situation wants you to desire her, um, the person writing the question, but she doesn't want to actually show up and have a sexual relationship. And so and now, and then she's trying to, of course, say that you're the bad one for wanting it. You're the hedonistic one. And, and it's kind of an easy sell to LDS men who have learned for a long time to be ashamed of their sexuality. That they are the higher, you know, men in the church get socialized into the idea that they're more sexual than women and that it doesn't interfere with their sense of masculinity like it can with women's sense of femininity in the way we socialize. But, but we also teach men that their sexuality can be destructive. And that it can take, you know, good people, you know, can, can take innocent women down in a sense. And so there's also a lot of conflict men and some wives exploit that conflict and make men feel 
you know, ashamed for their sexual desire. And so, you know, I, I think that this, I mean, there's a lot to say about this, but I think that this person should think about, you know, what does he have to be ashamed of in wanting his wife? And why is he taking the, why is he silencing his desire? It sounds like he's trying to keep the peace in a sense and trying to keep his wife happy with him. But that's exactly what she knows you, the questioner, do. And she believes she can keep the upper hand in this way because she knows you want peace and you're conflicted enough about the legitimacy of your desire that she can kind of keep you in this position. And it's, it's challenging. So I think that, you know, to the question of like, how do you own your sexuality? I mean, I don't think masturbating is going to help you own your sexuality because I guess my point is that what you want is to have a sexual relationship with your spouse. And so, I mean, if masturbation were really going to solve it for you, and okay, then I suppose you could do that. But I don't think that that's really what the problem is. You owning your sexuality in this meaning context is not apologizing for what you want and not letting your spouse back you down from your position. You're not really taking on the legitimacy of your desire for some reason, and you're letting her define it and you're yielding to her reality, to her anxiety. Now, I'm not saying if you own what you want that she's going to necessarily uh, respond to it. But I think the challenge for the questioner is how am I going to handle the fact that my wife is using marriage as a form of taking hostages? not as a form of raising up and bringing her best self to the marriage. So many people in marriage use it as a way to feel safe and to not have to grow. And these are the people that come into my office all the time is that one or both people have done this rather than marriage is a contract where you promise to bring your best self to this other person. You're not taking refuge at another person's expense. You're promising to bring your very best to the other. And when you have a spouse that won't do that, then you are up against a bind because you, if you're going to really stand up for a better marriage, you may be looking at divorce if the other person isn't willing to grow up and deal with their half of the deal. But in the position that this person is taking, the wife will never grow up because she doesn't have to, because she's not getting pressured to deal with her immaturity and her cruelty because the husband is tolerating it, he's accepting it. And I'm not saying he should go and be a bully or, or you know, be a tyrant in return. I'm saying that as long as he can be backed down into an apology, that is a disownership of the legitimacy of his sexuality, that's what he's doing. And it isn't doing anything good for him, for her or the marriage. It's not a position of strength. It's not a position of kindness. It's not a position of goodness. Uh, it's bad for all involved that the questioner backs down and the wife takes the position she takes. And so, um, so owning his sexuality or owning the legitimacy of his desires means being willing to stand up for a position that's going to pressure her to grow also. He will grow in order to do that. And it will pressure her to confront herself and to grow into a better person. I've seen over and over and over again in my clients that it's when the person that's in the more in the tight spot as this questioner is in, that when they say, no, I won't keep doing this, when they say, I, I will not be in this kind of marriage, usually the person that's had more control like the wife is in this question, will usually freak out at first and try and get the person back into the old position. And when they won't go back into the old position, then the, the person that has been taking the most in the marriage goes into crisis, starts facing themselves, and often will start growing up and trying to deal with who they've been. And it's remarkable. I mean, my, one of my goals is to push the person that's in the more compromised position to confront what they're giving up and the life they're not living uh, so that they can actually be more of a force for good in the marriage. And that's when you start to see 
the marriage evolve and the other person who's, who's had all the control uh, start to actually grow. Being in a control position is an expression of weakness, not strength. And so this is the way of growing two stronger people is by not putting up with the tyranny of the weakest person. Oh, that sounds hard. It sounds like yeah. a tough position to be in. It's very hard. It's very hard because you have to face the possibility that you may not be married. You, yeah. you're, you're taking a real risk of saying, I want better. And you know, nobody has to take that position. But that's the, that's the dilemma that you're in when you're in this kind of marriage and you have to confront what you're really willing to do. Now, some people would say, well, I made a covenant to be married to this person and therefore I can't take a different position. I, I respect that some people may see it that way. It's not how I see it. I see it as not, I, I've made a promise to God that I'll be married no matter how cruel, how awful, how horrible it is. I don't see goodness in, inherently in staying married. I think it's around bringing your best self and standing up for a good marriage. That's what I think it is to live up to your covenants, to stand up for a loving, good marriage and to do your part to pressure that reality between the two of you. And it takes courage. And it takes tolerating the invalidation of your spouse. Good marriages tolerate the invalidation of their spouse because, you know, it's when my husband has said things to me I didn't want to hear where he's saying something true about me that I would, you know, I would actually begrudgingly respect him more for speaking straight to me and then have to deal with myself. And I'm grateful for that in him. And I don't know if he's grateful for it in me, but <laughs> the reverse has happened. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's what creates, that's what creates a good marriage is you, you, you bring your best and you ask for the best from your spouse. Right. And as, as you were saying, when we talked about bodies, that bodies are not solely for, they're not solely sexual. There's a lot more going on than just the sexual nature of a body, but the mm -hmm. sexuality is there. It's part of what it is. Mm -hmm. um, similar for marriages, marriages are not created solely for sexual gratification. Right. But it is part of the agreement, the arrangement. Right. It's what it's what makes a marriage special, right? It's what makes it unique. Yeah. Is because it's the one place where your sexuality is, right? Yeah. You can love your children like you love your spouse, but your sexuality is exclusively there and it's what makes it special. And and what I would say is what makes it special is that marriage other love relationships, you know, in family and siblings and children, those are all sort of biological relationships. They happen. Marriage is based fundamentally in choice. And I think passion and sexuality is fundamentally a choice. And so you're basically choosing your spouse by bringing your sexuality to them, bringing your eroticism to them, sharing that part of yourself with them. It's a very important part of choosing. And so when this man writes and says that it, it kills his self-esteem, you know, absolutely. Because basically his wife is saying day after day after day, I don't choose you. I don't want you. I'm not interested in you. I'm not going to bring my sexuality to you. I'm not going to share this part of myself with you because I reject you. And, you know, it's a very, very hard thing to deal with. By contrast, you know, when people are very happily married, they know they can bring their whole selves to their spouse. They can bring their eroticism and their sexuality and find an acceptance and find a reciprocity there that is miraculous in its own way because there's one place where you feel you can fully be who you are and bring this uh, very private, reserved part of yourself to one other person. And so when a mar marriage is deprived of that, it, it really wreaks havoc on the marriage. Huh. I mean, I guess it's a really tough situation. And are, I mean, is there anything he could ask his wife that would kind of be um, 
I don't know. He's kind of asked this in the question. He's asked his wife a lot of things <laughs> that you'd probably use to kind of gauge how interested she is in working out. She's, she's not interested at all at this point. You can see it in everything in the question. She is interested in keeping him in the position he's in. Now, what he does is going to shape her. Hmm. So let's try something and we can take it off the recording if it if it's too if it's too long or doesn't not very effective. But I Laurel, I'll play the husband coming from a more owning of his sexuality position he's owning what he wants and he's not apologizing and you be the wife who has no interest in therapy okay okay <laughs> all right so I would say to you honey I have really been thinking a lot about our relationship and and our sexual relationship or the lack of it and how I have been really putting up with the the non-sexuality of this marriage and it's been so painful for me. And I know that you have really taken the position that this is bad. It's a bad part of me. It's bad for you. You don't like it. And if I love you, I will just respect that. But I don't respect it. And I don't respect the kind of marriage we've been creating. It's been excruciating for me. And I've been participating in a sexless marriage with you in a way that I can't do anymore. And so I know that you've told me that it's horrible that I want to go to a marriage therapist. And I think you're telling me it's horrible that I'm even interested in this. But, um, and of course, you may keep saying that, but I don't see it that way. And this has gotten serious enough for me that I think if you really are unwilling to deal with our sexuality period I'm not sure that I can keep doing this with you I'm not sure if this is where I can stay now let me just make a side comment I don't think this person should say something like that if that's not what he really means but I think that in order for a marriage to get better you often do have to put the marriage on the line and I know people might bristle at that idea um one other thing you could say instead of that, I'm not sure the marriage will continue. Say, I don't know that I would choose to ever get a divorce, even if this doesn't change, but it will fundamentally shift our relationship because I don't know that I can keep actively desiring you when, because it's not good for me when I know that you will never choose me back when you won't. And so it will, it will if you're not willing to deal with this, and you may not be, I don't think we're going to continue to have the same kind of marriage where you feel my desire for you. So then does that mean you just think a marriage is about sex? Right. And I'm not surprised you're saying that, which is what I think you want to say is that I'm just, you know, being ridiculous because I want a sexual relationship. But um, I think you know, and I know that that's not what I'm saying. I just want a sexual relationship with you. I always have. I was drawn to you when we were dating. I wanted you sexually. You wanted me sexually. Then we got married and you wanted to change it. And you have a right to change your mind. I'm not saying this is obviously. If, if this marriage were just about sex, I would have left a long time ago. I just want sex to be a part of our marriage. Well, you said you can't respect the fact that I don't want sex, so I feel like you just don't respect me. That's a good move. I know what you're trying to say to me. You know that's not what I think. If I didn't respect you, I would have left a long time ago. And, and frankly, honey, I think putting up with this like I have hasn't been very respectful of you or me or us. I think we have it in us to be a better partnership and I am willing to deal with whatever I need to deal with to be a good sexual partner to you. Uh, if there's something I can do to make this better for you, more comfortable, anything we need to deal with, I'm here to deal with it with you. I'm not saying you owe me something. I want to create a good relationship with you. That's also sexual and you obviously don't have to do it, but I'm going to go to the therapist with or without you. But I hope you'll be with me. So what, you want me to become like a stripper or something? That that would be nice, but that's not what I'm aiming for. I mean, obviously, you know that I don't want you to be a stripper. 
in the sense that I think you're trying to imply. But yes, I do want a better sexual relationship with you, you and me. And you know that I don't want you to be just sexual. Okay, so we can stop at that. But but I think, Laurel, you're doing what is, is exactly in line with what many people do. They feel the squeeze coming on because their spouse is not as dependent. I mean, if you see in this role play, the husband is not getting in, seduced by her shenanigans. He's not trying to prove anything to her. He's not trying to prove his point. He's owning the legitimacy of his sexuality by laying claim to what he wants without feeling ashamed of it. Because what I ask many Mormon men is what exactly do you have to apologize for about your sexuality and about your sexual desire? And I mean it as a, not a rhetorical question. I mean, I mean it as a sincere question. Do you think there's something wrong in your desiring of your spouse? What is the problem with it if there is? Like maybe you don't think that what you're bringing is all that great. Maybe you don't think it is that kind or generous or loving. So then you do maybe have something to, to deal with in yourself. Um, has it just that you've been socialized into this deep anxiety that somehow sexuality is bad and if you're a good man, you won't be in a sexual relationship? Because I think you need to get clear about the goodness of what you're offering. If the lower desire person is dependent often much more than they realize on the desire of their spouse. They do see it as a good thing. They just aren't sure they're sufficient for it. And they don't want their higher desire spouse to find out. And so um, that's often what's at play. And you're role playing well, Laurel, because you're kind of becoming more ridiculous, which is what often happens as they see their spouse not backing down. They're scrambling more to get you back into position. And it's really important to stay clear within yourself around what it is you want. And he's not really telling her you have to do this, but he's defining himself in front of her. Hmm. Yeah. And if you're used to things being in a certain position, that gets very threatening. Yeah. I think that she's feeling threatened because this guy is finally getting a backbone. Yeah. Just It's just really interesting to me because I feel like because our culture does not talk about sex at all. And there are so many different kinds of so many different kinds of dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not I think. I think we're constantly bombarded with the the stereotype of just, oh, it's just that men want sex and women don't. And that's just, that's the big problem and that's all. And yep. And it gets, it's just fascinating the different psychology of it. Because I think for, you know, some women it's because of shame. Some women it's because of power. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And some women might have trauma or, you know, right. just so many different things. And then there there's so many other scenarios like we've had in the questions of women being higher desire or you yeah. know just a different and, thing. and let's just say like this woman for example in this may have trauma you know she mm-hmm. may have I mean first of all there's people who really have trauma and they're not trying to get control in their marriage and they really are have high anxiety about sexuality mm-hmm. which is its own challenge um, and I think love is dealing with your limitations for your spouse's benefit and really being willing to confront them, right? This person clearly wants control and she may want control because she probably grew up in an environment where there were people that controlled her all the time. And it may well be that she has some trauma around sexuality as well. She certainly knows how to jerk someone around and she probably was jerked around herself. So the issue is not whether or not, you know, she's got the capacity to do this. and she just won't. I, I doubt that's the case. But really, it's around how do you handle your limitations in a marriage? Because we all have limitations. How do you handle your fears and anxieties in a marriage? Um, because we all have them. Because the, how much integrity you bring to those challenges makes all the difference. When you know you have a spouse who is kicking their butt for your benefit, you grace is easy. Easy. Right. And if you think they're, you're using your limitations to not have to grow, to not have to deal with how it hurts the other person, then it's much harder to be forgiving of it. So, you know, right. It's really around whether or not we bring our best to the challenges that we face or not. You know, it's going to require development in him to be able to deal with his marriage in a way that would be good for both of them. 
Well, and eventually for the success, it'll require both of them to to step into a vulner- yeah. vulnerable place. Because for her, if she's, uh, you know, as described in this question, yeah. this is a terrifying step for her to take out of yeah, the position definitely. that she staked out. Absolutely. So Absolutely. that's why it sounds and like such probably, a tough spot. Probably, that's right. And she probably grew up in a family where exposure did not go well. Yeah. And so she's kind of got double whammy in that she knows how to get control in this negative sense, but also has reason for wanting it because of the environment she grew up in. So it's hard. It's challenging. Growth is hard. You know, yeah. it is. It's hard. So I respect it, but it's, it, um, it, it it's, makes your life better when you go through that. So. All right. Well, those are uh, two great questions. Uh, lots of advice to chew on. Um, thank you both again for joining me on the podcast, Jennifer and Laurel. Thank you. Thank you.